Hi, and welcome to another episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, this week has a bit of a change to get away from the dark drabness of the sustainability charts. I have invited a very special guest. Now, I met Ranghil when we were both on television a few months back, and that was quite an experience. So I've been very much looking forward to having her on the podcast. Ranghil, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, and thanks for the nice introduction. It was nice meeting you too at Gumornarje, the national show, morning show. Uh, my name is Rangli Brukman. Uh, I'm an art and fashion historian, and I write a couple of columns, one of them called The Aesthetic, or The Estate, rather. Do you say that in English? The Estate? Estate. Estate. Maybe. Estate. Uh, in Mornbladet. And both the columns is about visual culture and uh, aesthetic and as the, the most, uh, or the column I've been writing for the longest is a question and answer column, which is very nice because it uh, enables people to ask whatever they want about clothing, everything about aesthetics. And my great experience writing that column is that particularly men write to me and anonymous, anonymously, blah, 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 anonymously, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and they write to me with a whole lot of shame and guilt being interested in particularly fashion in clothes. And I think my favorite, my favorite um, question of all time is not so much a question, but rather a cry for help. And there, there is this old man, 67, I think he was, writing from his mother's bedroom on his mother's computer, his mother's email address, because he's so ashamed that he has to talk to someone about his shameful feelings about being very, very into aesthetics and particularly fashion. And he, he doesn't know where to to address those feelings and how to outlive them and if they are illegal and who he can talk to and uh, why he has this passion without a society to, to exchange his feelings within someone, his own age, his own gender that he can talk to, which is really, it's, it's not really a question, it's just a long ramble and he needs to, wants to be heard and he... Um, he's longing for just this feeling of community maybe or just, you know, someone to put a stamp on his interest and to say, you know, your interest is not only legal, it's highly important and here is why. So so I think what I'm really doing in life, whether I'm writing columns or doing, uh, you know, lectures or teaching is really to help Norwegian people uh, to feel less shameful about aesthetics, being interested in it, and to make uh, aesthetics a part of the grand discussion of, you know, film, literature, music, and all these uh, cultural expressions that has a big language and a big communal language that everyone knows and every feel, everyone feels at home in. But fashion and visual culture, you know, like your 
your cup, your interior, your toothbrush, your everyday habits, dressing up. There isn't any language for it, at least not in Norway. So trying to make that space a little bit larger like you do and that conversation a little bit bigger. That is main, That is what I do, basically. <laughs> and it's a big job because there is a lot of people who want a, a bigger language and someone to talk to, I think. I'm already totally invested in this poor soul writing from his mother's <laughs> yeah. bedroom. Yeah. Were you able to help him in any way? I think so. You could you could read you can read the response at morbrother.no uh, slash aesthetica. <laughs> I'll try yeah. to find a link yeah. Uh, yeah. when I'm done. You put up a link after. Yeah. So you say we don't have any language for this in Norway. No. Is Norwegian a very poor language, or is there no? Don't Norwegians dress at all, or interest take interest in how they look? I mean, of course they do, but I think there is. I think there are several factors at play at once here. I think that one thing is that Norway's been, you know, historically poor. We've been under Swedish and Danish rule. Uh, we haven't got much of a. a, a you know, like a noble culture that's been for the Swedes and the Danish, and we haven't got this. You know, uh, not only we haven't got nobles, but not we haven't got the the royal family to look up to, and we haven't got this very class divided society, which is you know basically a very good thing. But it also has to do with I think the the national self identity, which is has been not having a lot of super rich people and uh, a lot of uh, upper-class culture that often is, the, you know, the stronghold of everything elegant and refined and, you know, um, precious and exotic and uh, globally invested, you know, like silks and jewels and whatever you've been able to get from around the world. So, I mean, not that we haven't had rich both farmers and you know, gentry in Norway as well, but the the critical mass of people holding on to that culture and nourishing that culture has been very, very limited. So I think when we got, you know, our independence at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, yes, we chose a new king, cool, but still there is this identity that also has to do with being different, I think, from Sweden and Denmark different in having a less class-based society maybe or wanting it to be less class-based and into that self-understandment I think we wanted to you know have emancipated women that could wear trousers that wasn't so you know uh, refined in the traditional French way maybe or you know we're trying and claw our way into something a bit different and maybe we were just scared and boring and uncertain of who and what we should be and what to look like but there is this I think looking back in history in Norwegian fashion history is this feeling of someone trying to become themselves and we are very much still in that project I think and it has to do with cultural at large if you look at architecture if you look at furniture design there isn't that there's been I mean there has been a lot of great people and interesting works but we do not have the same we haven't had the same uh, governmental or personal invest uh, personal invested um, what can I say uh, th this way of 
making things important for all like Sweden have and Denmark have and even Finland have. I mean, we haven't got this Marimekko, the the Hoppe lamp, the, uh, the the big Swedish uh, change like uh, change like uh, H&M and IKEA. We, we haven't got these, not even in the modern age of democratizing good taste and design, we haven't got this these flagships or these single entities or people who could say, you know, it's all right, do care, please, because it's important. I think we're still a bit, ah, we want to look everywhere else and maybe that's even a bit uh, sadomasochistic joy that we have, you know, oh, Sweden, they're so good, and Denmark, oh, it's so Danish and, you know, international, and it's just, and we are just, you know, going into a cabin and putting on our knitted cap and it's just, you know, we have this image of being very natural and very, I don't know, down to earth, while in reality we are stuffed with oil and uh, everything, you know, high flying and quite the opposite. So, yeah. yeah. Long answer. Yeah. But there used to be a garment industry in Norway. I'm just yeah, going down yeah. that little side avenue now. And it was pretty vibrant and active, and there were lots of people making lots of stuff. Yeah. But nowadays it's just designed in Norway, made somewhere else yeah so norwegians might sort of be coming up again a little bit not so much i think most definitely things are happening or on the other hand i think if you look internationally fashion is it's not at a dead end but it, it I think fashion is at a very difficult point in history because there is this, uh, I mean, one thing that's very difficult is obviously climate, which we are not going to talk about so much today. But climate is a very, climate is a very difficult thing, not because, uh, not because it's a stupid thing to, to do everything possible that we can to change how things are done. I mean, it's horribly polluting. It's uh, the end of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And nothing can deny that. On the other hand, I think that uh, the way things look and the way that they are um, made never has been the same and never will be. So the discussion about quality and Ethics is not the same as how things look. And that conversation is very much not taken. I mean, not even in the education, educational system, or at least that is my experience. That, I mean, oftentimes I, I feel that those are two different discussions. And also there is something, something obviously that makes it very hard to want to become someone who really designs something that isn't already there and isn't just casual or, you know, rather I think a lot of people feel or designers feel that because of the climate change and because of things being so difficult, you need to make just simple brown and white and grey stuff because it's supposed to be elementary and basic and stay in a, inside of a capsule collection forever, which is like the biggest, fattest lie ever, obviously, because timeless isn't a grey piece of garment. It's it's whatever tickles your fancy. I mean, and it's it's about what the times we're living in. So so that is one thing that makes fashion now very, uh, very difficult. And the other thing I think is, I think fashion now is trying to deal with 
really coming to terms with democracy. So now everyone knows that fashion is thoroughly democratized, down to the point where having a fantastic quality like super silks and haute couture and personally made, it doesn't make that big of a difference. And it's partly because we don't know quality anymore. Most people haven't felt a fitted jacket on the backs or felt what it could do to your body or self-esteem or whatever, you know, so you don't have that physical feeling of, of a need that you want to have fulfilled. So you don't, I mean, you don't want something that you haven't tried on, I think, a bit. And then on the other hand, there is a society that is growing more and more casual so we don't need this fantasticality. I mean, obviously we do, but the society has told us for a long time that we don't need it. We need it a little bit at Christmas, a little bit at weddings, a little bit, you know, sometimes. But, I mean, there are no horse races. There are no grandparentals, 70s jubilees. I mean, there is nothing that requires something, you know, really, really, really super superbly tailored or special so I mean that's obviously one thing but there is also this last part of uh, fashion's uh, democratization which is you know I think we are looking at the entail of uh, of the Instagram and the influencer culture which has been fantastical peacocky dressing the combination of high, low, expensive, inexpensive for a very long period of time, which was exciting when it came, but also completely exhausting because it tells the story of uh, being someone only because you look like someone and not because you are this star who also happened to look fabulous or have this occasion to go to. And so I think there is something... Now we are so stuffed with a dream that everyone fancy looking could be a star and make a living out of fashion and how we look. And that dream for many coming true, obviously, but also being, you know, putting us all into this narcissistic hole of not wanting it anymore because we've seen it so many times already. And all the fantastical uh, combinations, you know, as, as something of... Like looking like something out of Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, a horrible film, but you know, still it's like up and down and two thousand things, etc. etc. It just I think people are a bit a bit fed up in a way, and particularly with the feeling that everything could be converted into something that you could sell yourself, your style, gaining followers, gaining a more interesting job. There is this feeling of of professionality, I think. Besides, I mean, out of the democratization came this wave of of professionality that is hurting people's self interest. It's very hard to just be interested, just for you, where everything good needs to come from. I think, anyway, to to be something, or I don't know. So, I think we're at this spot in history where we just trotting the water a little bit and trying to fathom what's happening and having all these thousands of opportunities with net shopping or whatever and, and also having this feeling of having seen it all before. So what to do, I don't know. Or oh, I, I do know a bit about it, but not, you know, it's different. Well, that's, 
That's an interesting, uh, interesting aspect. I mean, you've now basically um, killed fashion. We're burnt out on social media. Um, so basically, it's the end of clothes <laughs> being fun. Should we loop back to where clothes started being fun? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've never, I will never give up. I mean, obviously, being a human and living through different times could never be giving up or giving in or, you know, being irritated about society being what it is for a very long time. So what you have to do is to, I think, the first step, my my rant now is sort of like, this is how I see status quo right now. Then I think the next step will be to going back to the original feeling. Why care? Why dress? Why makeup? Well, simply because it's it's fun. Like like this old podcast is about. It's fun. It's fun to play. It is about us being something more than naked apes. It's about taking whatever you have to brighten up your body and your day or, and your, you know, family life, the work life, whatever. And it's about surprising yourself and figuring out who you want to be. And also, especially as a man, I think, not trying to not think that you should just find your style slash identity and keep to it, but more try to think of it like, you were a teenager and still need your whole life to figure out who you want to be and that it will change it should change i think a lot of people do mention this find your style yeah yeah, yeah. I, i've never been able to relate quite to that because no that just seems incredibly boring and limited yeah i think i mean isn't this like just jesus saying i'm many or at least directly translated from the Norwegian Bible. So I think I I always think that I am different people at different times, obviously me, etc., etc. But there's very strong I think trying to go beyond this very limiting you know the idea of you being this one person or this ideal person if you could choose one of you yourself. <laughs> uh, so I think in my closet, for instance, it's sort of like it represents my, you know, my different feelings, my different playlists, my different friends, my different likings. And I think I think for a long time I've been wearing a lot of the same. And my oldest clothes I probably got when I was 10 years old. No, six years old, actually. So I have a range of clothes from when I was six years old till this year and but and I think I have like several there are several personalities that some of the you know the styles or looks or whatever could be attached to so there is like a little chair Horowitz from Clueless which is like you know little checkered um, skirt suits and stockings and the, the the gaiety of the 90s that was very inspired by the 60s and Jackie O, etc. But it's just, you know, it's, I mean, probably has to do with my hair naturally just being the way it is or the way I like to, you know, comb it over like a 90s person. 
So I think there is this one clueless person and then there is a street person who I really like low-hung. I have like a really low-hung, baggy, my brother's skating pants from when he was 16 and trying. he was trying to figure out who he was and I inherited them. And now they are very funny because they have big holes, like naturally torn and just has a very cool, you know, the way it's, it's long, uh, low slung. And I just like, I like it. To, I like to wear it with my sloggy, like um, knickers, you know, like very high cotton knickers, <laughs> which is sort of like a play on, you know, like a rap star that would have like Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren or whatever. And sloggy isn't really something to sport. So I think that's funny. So like really crisp white sloggies. <laughs> over the lining <laughs> of the pants <laughs> and then like a short crop top especially when no one else is we're wearing a we're wearing a crop top that i mean that just amuses me and then you know like a denim worker jacket or something something and then there is this which is um i don't know circusy i think i mean just wet i mean a vest is so it's just something to pinch in in the back and a bit of a bow and something that just brights up your face in some way or other. So I think this, um, I think it's a very, it's a nice thing to know yourself through different silhouettes kind of, or at least I think of my wardrobe and me in my clothes, like different types. Hmm. How are you then? Are you one or many? <laughs> I, I think I'm many. Uh, from being the anonymous guy just nipping out for an errand with no thought. Nothing on. <laughs> well, uh, neighbours will have observed me in my ratty um, dressing gown. Um, but on Saturdays, say, I, I dress up, yeah. uh, flaunt it, uh, ready to meet people, have some fun. And uh, there's business, there's work, there's so many scenarios that I could never see myself being exactly the same in each of them. But what is your most, what is the most, most you? I mean, if you have like three favourite, like that sweater, that great coat, that pair of pants. I do, I do have some stuff which is uh, more favourite than others. I have a US Army great coat from 1945, yeah. which feels fantastic with brass buttons and it's big and you pull those brass buttons don't you a few of them yeah <laughs> but not in a sort of uh, wanky spritzer <laughs> tour uh, type of way where one of them is and the next isn't and it's all sort oh of yeah planned. right you know. that's just cringeworthy yeah uh, i have a fantastic glove roll duffel with lots of badges on it just cheers me up, makes me so happy. You put the batches and on yourself, or it came, no, it like came with them. It was a special anniversary edition, and it oh. came with lots of badges and wow. things. And it's just great, yeah. it's sort of a mod theme. Um, but I have quite a lot of clothes like that. Where and but the fun is just sort of mixing and matching, and instead of going with a straight three-piece tweed suit where all the tweeds the same. Go with three different tweets. But do you have the same thing? I think, like, for me, something great happened when I found my first woolen blazer with great shoulders. I mean, having that great, great blazer is fantastic pattern. 
and just having that feeling. I, the first I found was uh, all my blazers are, I have most of them are 90s, some are 40s, and both have great shoulders, but there's a different type. So I found this Italian blazer. It has a very soft uh, herring bone, very subtle uh, pattern. It's in beige, gray, and light, 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 light blue. And the shoulders are so soft, and yet it gives this slight masculine edge to it that just lifts whatever's underneath it. I mean, not only me, but the you know the the look of whatever I'm putting on, mm-hmm. and just this having that blazed feeling, and then a great coat over that is just. I think that's my ideal feeling of putting on clothes. Really, is that last finishing touches having this under is fun and you need something to sort of stick out and excite the looker i mean and especially yourself obviously but then just having this uh, this human touch it feels like someone is putting on your jacket from an old i mean you know having gone to a restaurant in the olden days and someone would have the good grace to just help you on or off with the jacket it just has this feeling of i don't know of care of someone caring for you which is very nice and i don't think there are not so many other pieces of garments that really gives that strong feeling of good care It's relatable. I think uh, I have some tweed coats which are which give a similar feeling, but it also makes me think of wearing ties. Ties appear to have so many rules. There's so many do's and don'ts, and or you have to have these silk ties and things. So I like to just flip it completely over and wear a tie that really isn't appropriate at all. Like how? But just the way you tie it, or the, or the pattern. I, I only know one way to tie a tie, and I learned that when I went to school in England and I was 14 and had to learn. Yeah. Since then, I have been completely unable to learn another way of tying it. But just wearing, say, with a tweed suit, wearing a military tie or some thrifted uh, silk tie with something else and just not wearing it because it fits with that colour and that pocket square and all that. But I think there is a great, I mean, talking to what people could do these days in a in an a day and age where the feeling of casualty, I mean, not, I mean, casualty is a right and wrong word here, but just this feeling of um, fashion being not only dead, but uh, just, I mean, dead because it's so casual. It's uh, it is this sense that you can wear whatever you want from morning to evening, whoever you're meeting, kind of. But I think that within those rather confined borders, and especially for men, I mean, who are jeans and blazers and the shirt and a tiny reeled, you know, um, the bubble west, which is I don't remember the um, I don't remember the the nickname of it. Uh, this horrible succession piece of garment that's very popular in Norway as well. I think there is fantastically little done about changing up the feeling of a color and the feeling of a tie and what's happening just around your neck. I mean, there is a, this completely forgotten area that's been so. Uh, fun I mean so it's so much excitement around throughout the whole of history I mean from 
from ruffs to lace colors to cravats to uh, all kinds of ties and you know all these these different ways of uh, enhancing the face basically and making an interesting transition from not only face to neck to torso but from from shirt to a vest to your jacket and great coat etc so and also the same goes for women today i think that the 80s had quite a good time of making a lot of bows and a lot of shirts that had inbuilt accessories kind of you know like a little pin or a little extra ruff or something something but i i think the male shirt has gone like the rest of male dress really incredibly stiff and way too aligned with the whole modernist logic of simplicity and you know the architectural thought of simplicity that is straight edges and few colors and the columnar you know rather boring style that doesn't really suit everyone that well because you want to also build a body and be able to play with a shape not only having exercised or not exercised or being in a tidy white shirt or not being in it so there is this there is this um if i was were to make menswear i think or women's wear even i think i would go into the shirt the shirt and tie and bow business and also the traditional bow is way too boring i mean but there is there is a lot of rough roughs to be had <laughs> fun <laughs> to be had uh, and playing with different materials and especially in this day and age of webinars and maybe we're going to into back back into complete isolation who knows but this there is this this joy of presenting yourself i mean look at me not only lipstick because i'm a woman but you know i'm doing my best here trying to muse you yep yep um you mentioned accessories. Um, I, I, I don't really get accessories at all. Um, and I sort of feel a bit left out because I'm not at all interested in big watches. Oh, but I like you very much for that, I have to say. And I don't wear gold chains or lots of rings. <laughs> Why? Or, <laughs> but I see a lot of men are into that. But is it like so much of the clothing we wear today where – it's the brand names, it's the recognition factor, it's the flex. It's not really about what you like or whether it looks good, but it's about the sort of wealth you portray. I think I think that two very interesting things here, and I think that you I think the one thing is that men, and I don't mean to generalize and not all that are the same, obviously, but Knowing my male friends from my female friends, for instance, I know I have very few female friends who are incredibly into brands or having that watch or that car or that stereo or whatever you know very few who are nerdily into the details and the joy of browsing through 1000 web pages to know the year and date and the producers etc etc but i do know quite a few men and and also i think if you look through the like um newspaper like that when you go into the the watch column and the car column you find mostly men even though they try to put in a few women as well and you find a very particular way of uh being interested that is technical 
Uh, it's um, logical. It's uh, lexical. And there is, uh, you know, a, a long and a short list to to very easily flaunt your interest to someone else. And there is a particular language that goes with that, and that is easily accessible in a book. And I don't mean to say that you have a boring interest if you're very into old Omega Seamasters or whatever is your thing, but I think it sort of like mirrors men's and women's different languages about how style and things and uh, phenomena interest them. And if I look to my female friends, I oftentimes find a language that is more, I wouldn't say it's necessarily more sensual or driven by emotion, etc. but there is this, it's, it's a looser, less factor-based conversation about why it is interesting and why it is part of a wider cultural phenomenon or um, what it means to them uh, besides other interests or other connotations it gives them or, you know. So I think that is the one thing that it's uh, it has this meticulous way of being interested that I uh, I kind of coin as quite male I think, and then there is this other thing that within a dress culture that the last two hundred and twenty years has been uh, increasingly confined. You know, I mean, if you look outside of a few flares in the 70s and a bit in the 80s etc there is this confinement of a very rigid silhouette and a very limited range of uh, legal attributes and accessories except for the watch except for the wedding band uh, maybe another band of your own decision but that's quite risque I would say and maybe something about your hairstyle but I mean even just earrings has been very much a youngster phenomenon uh, and a gay phenomenon, obviously. And uh, the coming and going of the bracelet, something very strongly attached to rap culture and a very, diff very different idea of masculinity and virility and uh, male grandeur and uh, flamboyance and creativity as something that is more than a black and white suit or, or denim trousers and a shirt. And obviously you find much more of that in, in the south of Europe and in Latin Americas and uh, in, um, in all types of rap culture or R&B culture, etc. But there still is this very, I think accessories is difficult for men because they rightly I have to say, even though we can change that, they rightly feel that uh, culture's openness to uh, different ideas about what it is to be male and what kind of things you could uh, display your maleness with, it's, it's still very limited. And I would suppose that for you, going for the watch feels just very boring because that's the most common way now to have a legal interest in fashion. So I would assume, because you have a very different, I mean, personal and trying to do something else, I would assume that would bore the soul out of you to be a watch guy. You don't want to be a watch guy, I think. You want to be no, something more. I, I think I do. And also, 
I think a lot of the watch guy thing is that look at my watch, it's so expensive. Yeah. And that just doesn't really Puts sit right. You off. <laughs> but you did mention that um well, this sort of segues into now that society's opening up again and you see the guys travelling into work in the morning to their jobs with their black suits and their black trousers and their black bag and their black shoes and their black overcoat. And I'm wondering, when did we turn into North Korea? Last year. No, I think North Korea, I mean, I think that the very interesting thing is that, I mean, the whole separation of female and male dress and how ostentatiously if you've been dressed. I mean, the, the great split happened uh, in the 18th century around uh, a little bit before Marie Antoinette lost her head uh, and the French Revolution took place and the whole of Europe were up and was upended and things really, I mean, changed in the Industrial Revolution, etc., etc. But within that space of the 1700s and into the 1800s, I think the whole culture for men and what it meant to become a man and dress uh, appropriately was quite altered because not only because the, the manufacture of dress became much more sophisticated you could actually tailor a very uh, complex jacket, but also because there was this new ideal, particularly after the French lost their momentum, kind of, um, there was this new ideal of masculinity, very much based in your country, England, around the gentry, uh, around this idea also uh, very much coming from military duty, that had to do with a new frugal, um, a bit austere, serious, scientifically based uh, worldview that was uh, kept and provided for by men. And this new idea of the man, of the pillars of the earth, the men obviously, uh, they had to look like... uh, unshakable columns and at the same time you have this great new revival of uh, everything antique and from Rome and from Greece and you know you see it in the architecture like you know the whole Napoleonic style was called the empire or directoire in, uh, in England and this whole new style promotes this masculinity that is looking a bit like the Adonis uh, on, a, on a plinth, a bit like uh, a man from the regiment, and is supposed to be the new and only ideal man. And that is very interesting because this column of solidity and goodness is... Uh, is still very much our ideal today. You know, the kind of ripped uh, David made by Michelangelo uh, with big hands, broad shoulders, narrow waist, big chest, nice buttocks, long slender legs. You know, it, it still is the man. And what we 
tend to forget, and even historians have tended to forget, is that while the female silhouette is getting more and more, um, in, I mean, seemingly flamboyant and making the women more and more immovable, which has to do with the women actually being ushered in back to the house and the household because the men are now the one doing most things in the world and there are more men having the money to keep their women, etc., etc. Still this new costumed uh, look, the new suit that happens, you know, with Jane Austen's Mr. Darcy and the lot, that tailored look is super advanced and the jackets are super padded to make that look and to 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 bend your shoulders back. And even in the middle of the 1850s, as you probably know, also men has got corsets to make their waist tiny and even soldiers could have these corsets to make them look fantastic and and at the same time what, what we also forget is that not only was the, the the suit made to be fantastically uh advanced and refined and erotic also especially the military guys as jane austen portrays very nicely were really uh really meant to be and worked as uh, big garnisons of common fantasies, both among the men who wanted to be like them and the women who wanted to sleep with them and marry them, you know. So they were propped up to be fantastically godlike looking, but still uh, portrayed also as, you know, just... Just simple, and you you talked about the you know the term sprezzatura. It's just it they just had to be like that. It's nothing to talk about. It's just you know it's a, just a uniform. But that uniform is the beginning of most of the clothes we see today. This standardized way of making people look great. I mean that was a thought. You just couldn't talk about it, and that just and that thing just. Um, really goes nicely into today as well, that male attire became something not to talk about. You should just look the part and look fantastic, but do not talk about it because then the mystery is dead. Then the mythology is dead. You just have to be, you know, dressed apart, shut up, look good, do your thing. And if you don't get it, send an email from your mother's email yeah. account. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... From that, where did we get to the sort of, please don't look at me, um, I've just put something on, um, nothing to see here that we see so much today? Well, I think that also has to do with, the, you know, the whole no notion of masculinity, that boys were weaned off talking about their emotions, about their inner desires, about what they wanted in life. They were supposed to just, you know, Grow up, be independent, uh, do not trouble their wives too much with their worries in life. Go instead to your father, to your peers, you know, be strong. I mean, the strong silent type is obviously a myth as well. And not every culture or even in Europe has been the same, obviously. But still, I think this idea of... Um, not flagging your emotions and also not dressing in your emotions. And I think the really 
downfall or, or the or one of the really bad things that happens to fashion is not only that men and women really get their lives historically super separated in the 18th uh, or the 19th century. Strangely, as we are becoming very, very modern, the two lives are really uh, split apart. So the men are into society and going back home and doing their thing and the, the women are stuck at home. And also they are described, you know, still as throughout most history, as the weaker sex, as feeble, as the silent angel of the home, as someone you need to be a bit careful with, um, as someone who is soft and also as someone who has a very strong inclination for overspending, uh, who are frivolous, who are a bit stupid and who use fashion as one of the most certain signs of exercising her, her weak uh, disposition. So, even, I mean, already in the, the Middle Ages, there is a strong equation mark put between being a woman or feminine, being weak, and being into fashion. And that entity hasn't rubbed off still. So throughout history, women are criticized much more strongly than men for being too much. And I mean, there are thousands of texts and caricatures about men being stupid as well. I mean, looking stupid, putting on too much clothing and being too fanciful, etc. But they never attack their uh, intellect the same way as they do women. And they do not attack their sexuality as being something harmful and predatory and awful. And at the end of the 19th century, um, when men and women are living separate lives and trying to be very modern, and Freud is trying to solve everyone's problem because there is a big boiler and the lid is going, going off, Torstein uh, Werbeln, you know, the, the Norwegian-American um, economist and sociologist, he is furious with fashion and he's even um he's not a suffragette obviously but he's um what you call it like a, he's an early feminist or a you know campaigner for women rights and he writes the very famous book conspicuous consumption where he also says that uh fashion is a horrible thing fashion is a horrible thing because men use it not to put on their own bodies not to display their own wealth on themselves, but they create trophy wives so they can show off their great wealth. And so fashion is a horrible thing because it is a male instrument to show off their braggy, uh, horrible disuse of money and men wanting to get along in the world and be popular and rich and, you know, do like the nobles did in the olden days. And at the same time, it, it confines women to being looked upon as stupid underdog creatures, which he meant, obviously, that they were not. So he, this means that for a very long time, this really uh, goes positively down with a lot of people and also women, because it says that fashion is stupid, uh, men are the instigators of it being stupid, kind of. So, but not only that, it, it, we should get rid of it. 
So he says that fashion cannot be creative. Fashion cannot be a positive thing to flag your identity, not for women, certainly not for men. And we should just we should just try to get rid of it. It's a horrible thing. And a lot of other people, both men and women, and even the 68 generation women, were very much aligned with that same idea. That flouting makeup or high heels or not non-functional items is reducing yourself to an object and someone stupid. So this is a this is an inheritance that we are still very much bothered with, I think, culturally. And men just as much as women, because that means that expressing yourself through fashion is still very much coded as feminine and as a bit daft. And it is changing, obviously, but still there is this... Is it this we're seeing again now? Because obviously we sort of move past that obsession with uh, anti-fashion and the bleakness, but nowadays we're moving into this sort of slow fashion, this virtuous fashion. You did mention it a bit earlier with the drabness, all the drab colours and the drab cuts and the slow fashion where you're buying better, you're buying less, you're sort of loving your clothes more. Uh seems to me spending a lot more because people are inherently consumers and they do like buying stuff. So they're just buying drab stuff, which costs more and signaling to others that they are total paragons of virtue. That is very interesting because I don't, I don't think it's so easy to get a look of that change if it is really changing as much as, one might hope, I mean, not in terms of style, but in terms of um, consumer culture. But I think, I think what I see the most now, and maybe I look the most at young people because they are always uh, the ones trying to reflect society the most and, you know, experience everything for themselves, etc. But I think, to me, what's happening now is, once again, second-hand clothing is huge, uh, which has partly to do with uh, changed awareness in consumer culture that it needs to change and it's a good thing to buy old stuff, or relatively speaking, or it is a very easy way to get quality for very little money. But there is there, there is the one thing that combined with the 90s as in the last 12 years there has been an immensely long loop of great interest in the 90s that started off as an offshoot of the hipster culture with the uh, 501 jeans and the checkered uh, lumber shirts and um, you know ripped off uh, levies uh, um, denim wests etc and now it's turned, I mean, it's, it's, I think that the 90s fascination has been inside every nook and cranny of whatever was happening in the 90s from the very, very beginning, almost touching on the 80s to the very end, touching on the 2000s and everything coyote, ugly and uh, more blingy and tribal tattooed and, uh, you know, the, the, the more obvious, what we obviously now uh 
perceive as something anti-fashion, you know, going into the ugly and the rare and the, um, the not-so-clean that a lot of the beginning of the 90s fascination was about, you know, the minimalistic Kate Moss black and white slip dress look. So I think that youngsters now are both into buying old because they know it's nice to do it for the environment. They like it still as we did when I was younger because it's a more unique way of getting something rare. And also because there still is this gender-bending interest in silhouettes that are not so traditionally sexy, that is thought to be gender-neutral, which always means male-oriented, you know, more pants, more big jackets, more big sweaters, less forms, less boobs, less arse, etc. And... Then on the other, and also I think it has to do with this being a, I mean, a lot of style now being a reaction to the, the influencer look that is layers and layers of seemingly an eclectic style that never can be eclectic or eccentric because everyone knows it's a formula that is very easy to follow and also that demands a lot of money if you're going to have big Balenciaga trainers and a fun Prada hat and some Gucci blingy stuff that, you know, pops. And I think also what you see now is sort of like a re reaction against that formulaic look. And then again, every style is formulaic when it's popular enough and enough people in, and I mean, high school follows the style. It isn't that interesting anymore. But I think now there is this... I think people are, and maybe especially young people, are trying to wiggle their way out of something that has become a little bit stuffed and a little bit, like I said earlier, a little bit too professionally feeling. And I'm not so sure if people are really changing the consumer habits that much. And if, you know, like clothes swapping parties, I don't know if that is a good new ex excuse for meeting in a nice way or if it's really about wanting to change around your closet habits. I don't know, really. I think that's the search for the new yeah, I think thing, I, which just yeah. finds new outlets yeah. and ways to work. Yeah. But you mentioned formulas. I, I get that feeling every time I see a, a punk which admittedly you don't see that often now, but you can see them both young and yeah, clearly back. an original one. Yeah. But it's almost as if they have the checklist with the safety pins and the mohawk and the tartan and the rips and tears. And, yeah. and I sort of think, wow, is that your sort of unique and individual interpretation of what punk was about? But I, but I, I'm a bit like, I sometimes I feel very, you know, scornful and, you know, idiot it's been done before and i just want to <laughs> what haven't you don't you know your history and then on the other hand i think yeah like i was writing about this phenomenon or dark academia a few weeks back like this new very old but thought to be new subcultural style that has to do with on the one hand um uh, propping yourself up in 
in the 90s costumes and short skirts and long sweaters and turtlenecks and a little pendant and big um, rubber uh, shoes, etc. But But on the other hand, and I thought like, oh, seen it before. It's not only the 90s. This is just the neo-Gothic 19th century culture all over again. I mean, come on, boring. And obviously sharing a subculture on TikTok is just so anti-subculture. And then I thought, you know, you know, you know, something also happens. I mean, when you're young, you obviously have to try to do something that feels new to you. And for the last, let's say, since the 60s, early 17s and since the youth culture really became the dominant culture and young people became those who set fashion instead of the designers and the old people uh, or the rich people um it also has i mean a lot has happened in a very short time span and i think this i think there is a maybe also just a need to relive it yourself that you sort of want to, if you're looking a bit mildly on young people uh, doing old stuff, it's it could also be interpreted as kind of a coming to terms with, I think, trying on what your parents did or, or your grandparents or this, you know, oh, this mod look. I mean, it still looks incredibly fresh. I mean, obviously, and there is a... Uh, there is a recipe for how to do it and it's so easy to get if you I mean if you're into scooters and dresses I mean not only not dresses but suits and uh, having a short fancy haircut so I, I think I think it's not only society's amnesia or 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 being you know just totally without ideas i also think there is this trying to come into terms with everything that's happened and just like you know internet it's still so new it doesn't feel like it but it's it's i think a lot of young people just think that the 90s are insane because everything happened at one time and we were so innocent back then i mean it was like, wow, it's avocado in the shop in Norway. Crazy. Balsamic vinegar. Woohoo. It was so, I mean, we were so easily excited. So this, I mean, I, I try sometimes to think, um, to be a little bit more mildly tempered towards everything that I've seen 1,000 times before and, you know, want them to change, do something new. And also because I'm like in architecture also or in art, I think this is a very modernistic idea also that the next thing has to be decidedly new and very different. I think that is it's also something banal and and not every era should have that novelty surge or that novelty blindness. I think, I mean, the great first modernists felt that the whole old world had to be eradicated because society were off the hinges and poverty was immense and everything went too fast, etc. But we're not there anymore. I mean, now it's, I think we have to rethink what modern means. And if modern, I mean, modern should be whatever 
makes a society look, take a long, hard, honest look at itself and not just pushing the limits or building something very high or making a very nice bubble jacket. I mean, that's not, that's not modernity. It, mm. it is. I, I guess though that, I mean, our bodies are still basically the same. Yeah. So the sort of clothes themselves have to be basically the same, but we have had advances in fabric technology and how we assemble stuff. But it strikes me that to a varying degree, we might be talking about something which a lot of teenagers are into and I think looks immensely fun. Right. And to a certain extent, I think I'm sort of into as well in my own little way. And I'm talking about cosplaying. Oh, are you? Are you a cosplayer? No, just inside my head. Every every Saturday, I, I sort of become Tweed Man or something like that. But it is it is a sort of, I'm not taking it fully out like you see the, the teenagers do and stuff, but that seems so immensely freeing. Yeah. But I think I think you're absolutely right. And just at this moment, I'm researching. I'm very into uh, the Renaissance period uh, for different reasons, and it's. Uh, I think. I mean, the, the modern world that we're living in is very nice and open-minded uh, in a great many ways. But then, what we've lost is obviously. Um, things feeling precious and holy and having uh, times of the year that is distinctly different and where we have to dress differently and do things differently. And I think, I mean, there is a lot of good reasons for why Halloween is becoming so incredibly popular, obviously, because we need that change of pace and we need to up in the world and to to feel different and see your peers in different costumes and to and to play and in the renaissance period especially when the the masquerades from italy really hit the european uh noblesse big time they just i mean they loved it and it was all about men dressing as women and women as men and the poor dressing as the rich and the rich as the poor and also dining together and you know, mixing it up, and 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 also it was looked upon as something immensely important, especially in a much more rigid society, in hierarchical society, uh, that society needed that outlet to go back into its proper form. And I think today there is, I think it's it's rather hard to do that, and I think that is also why the the Norwegian Yule, the the Christmas feast at work, is such a big thing. Rather, I mean, not in a very good way, I think. But there is this there is this need to to change and to see each other uh, with different pair of glasses and to be allowed to be someone else. So this. This masquerade-ish thought or carnivalesque thought or this wanting the world to be a bit more mysterious and a bit less straightforward, I, I can't say I really have a good answer to how to do that except for taking back. I mean, then we have to go and take back all the religious calendar to get all those to get Mardi Gras and to 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 get back in Norwegian tradition the the Yule book the sort of a bit like Halloween but 
a rather more crazy kind of because not only are you going to sing, to you have to sing a lot to get your sweets, but you originally were supposed to go into the living room to people you don't know and and fuss around and pose them questions and be, you know, and be ambivalent and strange and talk with a strange voice and, and to bother people. <laughs> and there's just this, I think we need to bother each other a little bit more, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to put that into play, and especially not in a in a city. I'm not. I don't know, but I, I think we really need that. There is some after the big '90s raves, which never were my thing, and I was a bit too small back then anyway. But there is this. I would like. I would like something carnivalesque to reappear. Something you have to do. There has to be some. They, things have to be a, sort of like a must, I think. They're, now it's so voluntary, and I think this voluntary life is just a bit... There's nothing at stake, kind of. I think grown-up need there to be something at stake to really up our game. Or maybe I just mm. need to arrange more parties, I don't know. Something that sort of came to mind while you were talking there was um, the, the level of judgment both how you look upon your peers and how they look upon you. I mean, I have a, a mortal fear of being judged in anything I do. You do. But yet we sort of prance around on social media in all sorts of settings, opening ourselves up to being judged by the world and strangers and anyone. But do you think that limits us? I mean, that's a very good question because I think let's just think like, for instance, the whole notion of, I mean, how incredibly long it took for homosexuals and trans persons to be accepted and, um, you know, having their voices heard and their bodies seen and et cetera. And it's, it's a bit hard to think that social media, for instance, hasn't had a lot to do with opening up the gates or, or having the courage to flaunt your identity or wanting to talk about it, for instance. But then on the other hand, I think, I think I'm tempted to go back to what I usually call just this, the, the, the professionalism of the, the 2000s and especially 2010, I think, till now, uh, after Instagram took off and TikTok, etc., that there is this. Uh, I'm a bit unsure if uh, being open on social media, especially also as you get professional points, kind of for doing it, like wow, you look like someone, you could be on television or you you could have your own podcast or you you, you have this, now you, I mean, we are posing a lot of us uh, as uh, important people. And that also gives kind of like a shield around our project and our identity because it seems like we've found our form and we are very comfortable in our own skin and with our opinions and our followers. And if people don't like us, we just, you know, don't have to, we don't have to say anything or do anything. Just keep on pushing because our followers like what we do or whatever. And oftentimes I think, Especially 
as a lot of these things also happen within the confines of of a freelance based life or as a you know that we sit alone and just voice something into the void or are lucky enough to get feedback there is also this um it's just very different than growing up in a little place and daring to wear whatever you want at school for instance or going to the dance uh, and uh, wearing a dress as a man instead of a suit or you know it's just this uh, there is still a long road to travel from internet openness to real life freedom, to put it very bluntly. But um, maybe for many people, the one leads to the other. If it really makes us less instead of more anxious, I don't know, because seeing what people feel about you or think about you and not feeling it it's just very different it is very different and it's safe and unsafe in a different ratio i think than from going to party and just going for it or into your workplace or whatever it does make me wonder how teenagers today experience it compared to well when i grew up in the far north of norway where you were either one of the rich kids and you had their style or you were one of the weird freaks and you had just a different style and but you were all basically little fish in the same little pond not like today where you could be from some little place in the north of norway where there's just you and a few others but you're huge on tiktok in taiwan or something mm. it must be a really weird difference there yeah i think again i obviously for a lot of people having a different community is nice because you need a support that you don't get in your own family or in your own uh, place but then on the other hand it's such a great difference between reality and virtuality even though people could be real enough in messaging or, or or digital contact but i i mean like so many psychologists have been writing about the, the anxiety of the young people today and probably even my generation or your generation especially if you're really into something or pushing your product or podcast or thing or whatever i i think this I think there is this great problem about not only that internet could open up something that feels very close in your society, but also that the opportunities or the or the environment around something you are into is is infinite that it could that it could be everything that you could be everything that that there is this space of too much possibility. And also, as everyone who's, who has Instagram knows, at the same time, a very uh, massive amount of sameness. 
So I think coming to terms with um, how to think about your own person or contribution or what you do without being too invested in it being professionalized quickly or in a right way because you've seen it so many times or uh, if people like you or not or if you're popular enough or if you're following the right crowd or whatever I think I think it's just it's difficult not to feel obliged to to convert everything into something more and this something more being very obscure for many but precisely because it's it's virtual and that it's image based and the formats are short and the messages are both incredibly complex and i mean mind-dumbingly simple so there is this uh, and again i mean i think a good example is just how often if you write an email how difficult it is to really know the voice of a person, even though you write it the best you can. And to, especially if you are trying to, you know, get a deal or trying to voice your opinion on how something should be done without coming off as haughty or difficult or strange or whatever. I mean, just this having this uh, interface between us all the time, it, it, it's just, it is difficult however skilled you are or open-minded or whatever. This point in the podcast, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? And I have to admit, I hate ads in podcasts, so I don't have any ads. But if you'd like to support the pod, there is a link in the show notes to uh, buy me a coffee, where you can make a small donation to the costs of running the podcast. If you don't want to use it, don't bother and just continue enjoying it. I'd like to move on to uh, another topic now, age-related again. Yeah. I'm a bit stuck there, but this time sort of ageing upwards. You often see the expression of uh, dressing age appropriately, where you'll either – you not so often have teenagers dressing like old people, <laughs> but you will have older people sort of dressing too young. Sort of the ideas about how that could or should work – I think, on the one hand, I want I wanted clothes to be something that is, I mean, a wardrobe that is open to all kind of. On the other hand, there is a simple fact that a young, slender body could basically take whatever, and especially ugly stuff or big stuff or unproportioned stuff, because there's a fun contrast to a... A uh, narrow little framed boy or girl with uh, big teeth or pointed nose or freckles and a crazy hair or whatever. It's just, I mean, the just uh, youth is very interesting because it it it, it can hold up a lot of uh, weird expressions and also because I mean, psychologically, uh, being young is is the same as being in your formative years. And in your formative years, the the modern contract at least, is that you try out your persona in different ways. 
in order to become yourself. So it means it, it, it gives reason for you to try on different stuff, baggy pants, super skinny pants, very sexy clothes, very unsexy clothes, gender neutral, wrap clothes, whatever, because you want to try on whatever the world is giving you and not, you know, thinking too much about it. So that's the one thing. And, and when we get older, there is both this physical fact of having frames that do not take whatever the same way. We do not have a the same erect, uh, smooth-limbed body that just can, can do with whatever. There isn't like, I mean, when we're very young, it's it's like dressing a mannequin. It's it just, I mean, it could look fun and whatever. It's on it. It doesn't have to look nice, but it, but it gives sort of sense, body speak, bodily speaking. But then when we get older, I think, uh, going back to my great love for blazers and great coats, uh, I think giving yourself self-care is not only about exercising and remembering that it's good to have some muscles left when you are 90 to just make things work but there is also something about putting on a bit of armor because sickness will come and disappointments will come and you will need to lift your spirits again just as you needed when you were 18 and changed school and felt you needed a bit of armor because you were going into new school and didn't know who was there etc etc so this i think we go to through different stages of life where we need to toughen up a bit and both come to terms with how we both uh we we actually look but also uh, what we want to feel like and having a very young, young and strong body doesn't make you happy or give you a high esteem a self-esteem necessarily but it is a very easy framework to to work on is an easy canvas to work on while an older uh, older body could look just as fantastic but there is just this uh there is this uh let's call it a challenge of uh, molding it into a shape that you like being in because you lose uh, muscles and gain fat or gain wrinkles and all of those things are natural and should be heralded and not smoothed away. But there is also this, I think, just as we need... Uh, good friends and love and good food etc etc we need clothes that gives us some extra backbone and some extra comfort and some confidence boost and some structure in life I think and young people don't think like that because it, that's not the game the game is standing out fitting in finding your form and it should and could change that's the feeling and while we get older I think there is both very important not to feel that you have to confine to this one style and that is you forever and if you don't adhere to that style people will ridicule you especially if you are a man while you as a woman could 
I think a lot of women could maybe invest more heavily in shapes and fits and textures that they really feel good about themselves in. Like buying two blazers with one decent cut instead of one or just, you know, then you could act on your experience. What is the deal with the blazers? The deal with the blazers <laughs> is that your upper body is the main thing. Right. I wanted to ask you a bit about sort of what is the best look for men. Now, I'm sure you follow the veterinarians in Yorkshire in the 1950s on all creatures great and small. I don't, but I think I've seen a bit of it anyway. You probably have, but I wanted to know if Siegfried Farnan's tweed and uh, knitted vests and so forth are the ultimate expression of menswear. No, I don't think there is one. To me... It's a very loaded question. <laughs> it's very, I mean, it's very close to home as in close to you. And I think... For instance, with my husband, who has also like a frame of a, I would say he has a very 40s frame, like broad, he's not very tall, has broad shoulders, narrow waist, narrow hips, like muscular, but not, he could like, he's not muscular as in now going to the gym muscular, just has the working body of someone could join the army. I mean last great war and with him as well when I buy him clothes which I do sometimes I find it very natural to go towards the 40s look and the wools and you know sweaters with uh, uh, with um, sharp ended colors and with breast pockets and high-waisted trousers and uh you know, old um, lacing boots and, and the whole look. And that also partly has to do with if you want something now and want to buy it secondhand, as I almost always do, then the 40s style or even the, the 20s, 30s, 40s and not yeah, a bit into the 50s as well is the easiest style you can lay your hands on that is still untouched and has this, feeling of high quality and uh, a rather pared back but still proud masculinity. So I, I, I don't think it's strange at all that you like it so much and so many men like it so much. And if you happen to be like an Omega Seamaster collector, then you also wear towards that kind of style because it has this calm earthiness about it and still this subtle love of uh, not only details but fashion because there is so much within the the patterns of the tweeds and the wools and the, the leathers in the shoes etc etc so i think the, the 40s is kind of like the last time when quality and uh, classicality had a fairly broad spectrum of different things so it allows you to be into a, a male clothing universe and still have a range to choose from. And the more modern we get, the, the quality gets worse, usually, I mean, at least speaking for the, the broad spectrum of clothes. And 
there isn't that many places where you can go and get that stuff anymore, especially if you want it new. That just, I mean, the style is kind of there, but the cut is not right. The trousers are too low. The jackets do not have the same quality, and the fit is not so good. So, as if you, if we talk about the clothes that still remain from intact from the last hundred years, I would definitely go for the forties because. The clothes are still superbly wearable and they stand the test of time. And you could remake it, of course. It's kind of strange that the 40s, when the world really had quite a lot of other things on the yeah, mind, looked so damn should, good. Be producing, <laughs> <laughs> should be producing those clothes. It does, it does intrigue me when you say that you can actually find these clothes because whenever I'm looking at vintage clothes, it's all the rubbish from my teens, which I didn't really like then and I certainly don't like now. But maybe it's emptying out, though. I, I, I remember I was researching uh, in 2009, 2010, I was researching for a paper – uh, the great fascination for for vintage and secondhand that was really everywhere, and, and back then it still wasn't talked about. And this is for before the hipster era just drowns everything with kind of one style and one guy, and you know. And then I talked to, I went a lot around to different vintage dealers, and they told me a lot of them, especially the men looking very forties, you know, with the undercut, etc. Uh, they told me that now was the last of the British 40s, 30s and 40s, uh, available for ordinary people to buy and even vintage dealers to buy in England because the Japanese were so incredibly into that style now. So they were coming, one of the guys told me, to buy in bulk to ship it back into Japan. And probably also from different countries that wanted to go to Europe to get that, and especially Britain, obviously, because they have the whole bull textile industry. And the tailored, not only Savile Row, but just this mythology around the tailored England. And so they said that the wells were kind of emptying out. But then I think the, the women clothes it didn't dry out quite the same way, probably because... It wasn't that. I mean, the the young women who bought vintage clothes back then didn't only love the 40s, but also the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. It was much more a jumble of different styles, as I remember it. But 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 I met several die-hard 30s or 40s invested guys who wanted that particular style, and then they told me, like a like I already said, that it was kind of drying out because the interest was so massive and also because they wanted to buy certain styles to prototype it and to remake it, which is very logic as you think about it because the Japanese, I mean, the Japanese look that kind of started also in the 80s, that has been around for a long time, that looks a bit like the 40s, you know, with the high-rise pants and the bit rounded legs and the long working jacket. The worker jacket style, the lip, the bit you know, a bit boxy mm. and round, to me is very forties with a Japanese flair to it. So I think they kind of, if you go to like architectural uh, educations and stuff, or look at young architects, they very often have that. I mean, they've obviously been to Japan as well, but they have that forties, two thousand ish 
Japanese meets Britain look about them. And I think that has to do with how impulses, but also a whole lot of physical garments has flown away to a different part of the world and been reworked into something else, just like the Japanese bought all of the, you probably know this, but, you know, all of the original Levy's looms. So they could... I, th- I think that's an urban legend. Uh, do you think so? I, I, I don't think they actually shipped the looms to Japan. I think they already had enough looms themselves, but they did take the style... To the bottom of that. I don't know. I, but I, that, yeah. yeah um, well, I th- but I think they just started weaving the old styles of denims on their old looms themselves. I don't think they actually shipped but them. But the looms didn't change all the change, though. They did. Um, they did uh, fe- collect or <laughs> take all the old jeans from America to Japan, yeah. which makes me wonder if they took the thirties and forties clothing they from took, Britain and the jeans from everything. America. What else have they taken? <laughs> it all. A cultural momentum, anyway. I mean, speaking of cosplay, I mean the 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 mangas. I still, I'm I'm still very fascinated by how the young people today is just as diehard into manga styles as my generation was i felt that my generation was the first that really got into the manga universe i mean but this generation obviously feels that they are the first ones too so i think it's great it's so creative and so fun and yeah brilliant in closing is there anything you'd like to mention or bring up i sort of feel that i've decided all the topics here maybe you have something uh, close to heart you'd like to mention i think i think my like i i've said this a number of times before so this i mean pardon me if you heard me talk about this before but if you haven't i think my the one great thing or ad, advice maybe that i want to push on to the listeners is that where we are in society today and with all kinds of inspiration available I think that if you are really wanting to have your own look if or if you're wanting to sort of find your own feet again when it comes to not only your style or your uniqueness, but your own good feeling about dressing and your own good feeling about it being something that is your own. I think that the the best way to do that is to go back uh, into your childhood or maybe early uh, youth and Think about clothing as play, not necessarily cosplay, but as play. And by play, I don't only mean that it's very useful. I mean, I spend my whole life with nights in front of my mirror, just dressing up, dressing up and down and backing up and down, just and making up and taking it off and making up again, just, just because it's fun and just because I want to know how I look if I pair different styles or shirts or dresses or whatever and how different lipsticks look or you know different ways of doing your makeup and different shoes etc and 
really revel in prancing around in your living room when maybe there isn't anyone else there to your own music and just feeling it because especially if you feel a bit ashamed and it feels a bit ridiculous and you're afraid of looking like your son and daughter or if you if you're afraid of trying to dress younger than you are or or not doing something that is really yours or your style then i mean you don't know until you've tried something and if you haven't got I mean, maybe this is mostly in white for women who tend to have too much anyway. But And if you haven't got, as a man especially, if you haven't got things to mix around with and uh, wool sweaters and something you usually wear when you're at the cabin or some training something or, you know, great coat and uh, something very basic or whatever i mean or maybe borrow your your girlfriend's or wife's scarves or beanie or whatever this i really think that the first great step is to just kind of acknowledge that do not feel afraid to look ridiculous to feel ridiculous and to try on because the moment you stop trying on things that you wouldn't normally have thought about then it's very very difficult to surprise yourself and to amuse yourself and to feel yourself as new and I think even though women are much more attuned to a style of dress that equals new clothes or new styles with feeling new men still has the same imperative that you should have something new if you want to feel a bit new and have a new job and you know new obligations in life or whatever so this this playing going back to the playing maybe before halloween because you're trying to dress up like someone but not really because you want to look like <laughs> jack the ripper really uh, mm. it's a strong look it's a very strong look and if not if you have a friend who can go into a second-hand shop with because it's easier to make a mistake by when it's second-hand and it's not expensive. Try to, if you've been curious about this for a long time, just begin somewhere and begin with a scarf, begin with a different knitted beanie, begin with just just something and see if it gives off a spark of you being a bit more attuned to your inner lusts and a bit less confined by society's so-called rules i think or simply go to your favorite movies and see what they were regardless of where in the world the film is from if it's rashomon or <laughs> something japanese old style samurai or if you're a steel queen fan i mean just there is a reason why people on film usually look so good because it's very I mean, it's very well thought about how it affects the person playing the part and the people watching. I'm going to have to pop in a little question there. As you mentioned, Steve McQueen. Yeah. What is the thing? He keeps pop popping up as this style icon in his white T-shirts and his motorbike gear and so yeah. forth. Is it okay, though, to sort of 
venerate him so much when the real man so was, to put it plainly, a bit of an arsehole. But and weren't also they all? Mean to women. Weren't they all? No. Was that part of being a man back then? Slap your wife and. Yeah, I think my. Gr- yeah, I think, yes, you're right. There were assholes, a lot of them. Uh, then you have Clark Gable, which I think was much nicer. There's a bit more of a. I mean, he has a bit more of a similar look, but then you could fill in with his characters, and then you have quite a wardrobe. And my great favorite, who I think really looks good, is Gregory Peck. But he's not so much a style icon simply because he's still in the era where most men wear, wear suits. And I think Steve McQueen comes in as a guy, a bit like, I think I, I'm also very into Alain Delors, you know, the French actor, the new wave French actor. Incredibly oh, handsome, like the most handsome thing, handsome thing you've ever seen, I think. But again, I like how you call them a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> boy toys, I call them. No, but uh, but again, French movie was. I mean, it was big, but it wasn't. Uh, if I mean, again, English speaking rules the world. The the English and American people. Uh, so I think the reason why Steve McQueen is so hyped is because he is one of the people who transcends that era from everyone being in suit and James Bondish, wonderfully looking but the same, and then going into uh, a mixture of that and a bit of Rebel Without a Cause and a bit Marlon Brando, but with the new openness of the 60s and early 70s, that uh, dressing styles was a bit more relaxed. And again, you could have this, and I mean, the nicest thing I know it's still to this day is this Hemingway-esque big trunk-like neck. And then you have a very soft uh Woolen sweater with a with a turtleneck. So there's just this. I mean, Steve McQueen is also a little bit there. This contrast between uh, strong male, so called, but also this uh, this looking into the 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 male vulnerability with the neck and the, just the wool and just this soft hard, this soft hard look. And I think Steve McQueen was one of the first guys who did this soft hard look that was very enticing, especially I think to men. I think other men felt very much allured by that back in the days. Was he macho enough for men to appreciate without them feeling odd? I think he was for the young people who both looked up to the fathers but needed a way to rebel from them, who still wanted to have a cool suit but also wanted to drive fast and be an arsehole and have a big watch and dress in a turtleneck when they were going off to the boat. I think. But then again, I mean, obviously you have different guys wanting different styles and some wanted to be, I mean, like Belmondo or someone completely different looking and lanky and odd and, or Serge Gainsbourg. I mean, I mean, this is a period where just like with the female uh, characters that you would want to be, the, the, the whole gallery of idols were becoming less stereotyped and you have, you know, you had a wider spectrum of guys you could want to be, I think. Still the classical guys or classically pretty guys, but also the, the stranger ones. Could it also be the case that when those guys were around, you didn't really know much about them? Yeah. 
But looking back now, I know I find great fascination in reading stuff about musicians I liked when I was a teenager, but at the time you couldn't find out anything at all almost. But at the time, probably no one really knew that Steve McQueen was an arsehole. But we know now, and now it's become problematic. I think you're absolutely right. And I think also, I mean, speak if it, if it were Twiggy or Audrey Hepburn or it was Chair or whoever, I mean, all the male stars, I think that, and even in the 90s, I think the reason why also the supermodels of the 90s or the 80s and early 90s was so successful and like so exciting was that we knew so little about them. They were more like dolls and icons and royalty, really, that you didn't know the feelings of and didn't, I mean, still, you knew a lot about girlfriends and boyfriends and divorces and all that, didn't like the the dirty laundry, but but not personality and not this, no one were activists until old age and UNICEF and Audrey Hepburn style. And it was just this, it was just a more like, a, I think I think of them, the old style icons, more like a deck of cards. You had the clubs and aids and the spades and you had, oh, the knights that you loved and the queen and the king and the, you know, the, the familiar faces and then you also could project whatever onto it easily because you didn't know and I mean you could say it was a very static and boring way and uh, probably just as horrible to be a celebrity then as now but also this kind of privacy and also this fantasy around wanting people to just be your dream husband and not knowing more about it not knowing about uh, I mean, wife abuse and child abuse and alcohol abuse and everything, Hemingway school, Steve McQueen school, whatever. So I don't know. I, they were more like fairy tale. I suppose more like fairy tale characters, flat and two-dimensional and looking very good. Hmm. It makes me wonder, uh, one of the most famous posters of all times must be the, the tennis girl scratching her bum. Uh, and that must have lived on for years and years and is still a sort of iconic poster these days. But if that had been an image posted to Instagram, how long would it have lasted? I mean, not very long, obviously. And I think that is also why you or I or everyone, I mean, growing up in the non-digital area, that this is also back to one of the reasons why fashion is a bit difficult now, is that for an image to have an incredible impact on a billboard or in a newspaper or a fashion magazine, you just need there to not be so many pictures. You need your focus to be glued to the image for a little longer than one second for for you to really understand why this is novel, this is shocking, this is exciting, this is something unseen and in a sea of everything and this is the interesting also that i mean i think the i I would assume that just like today i think we have the same amount of stars that everyone across generations know who are so i think that there is a i mean people People have the, uh, you know, William and Kate and, uh, and they know like, 
I don't know, maybe Billie Eilish and George Clooney in a few stars, but there isn't that many. I don't think the difference is very great between now and earlier. And I think also when it comes to images and great, uh, I mean, upshoots of novelty, I don't think that we have many more fantastical images or fantastical uh, persons who generate something different now than we had before. And maybe there is sort of like a constant in terms of how many new things or new people or new fascinations a little human brain has the capacity to fathom and fall for and engage with. But I think also just a sheer mass of things makes it harder to attach feelings to anything in particular and instead makes it very easy to f- to feel that fatigue that it's a bit all the same and you like your artists or your pop divas or your actors but still outside of that there is no bra campaign that will blow your head off because it's so strange or fanciful and that is a shame because I think society kind of need it's easy although maybe I just mean it's easy to think that society needs those communal lamp posts to make us understand what's happening where are we looking now why are we looking there now it just feels like everything's muscarama a bit Everyone wants to play. Everyone just wants to be part of it. I I guess there's a constant amount of proper celebrities, may be constant, but what we have today is this whole mass of wannabes, uh, D-listers, wannabes, influencers, um, people just wanting attention. I mean, this is this is what I'm precisely what I'm talking about in terms of the professionalism this is the this is the backside of the, the the easy access to being sort of someone and it's a good thing obviously or that not like the fashion world maybe isn't that hierarchical anymore or that uh, political meanings could be voiced etc etc but in the end it's such a great difference between uttering your meaning or putting forward your person and wanting something to change or wanting to talk to people or wanting let's say you let's say you are a photographer who really wants to portray fashion in a different manner where is that person now i think i, I this is just rather a digression really but i think one thing that's really interesting with instagram is in to what little extent instagram is used to uh, to change or to prolong the traditional fashion image in terms of we have fantastic cameras, a lot of us. You could arrange your room, your setting, your styling, whatever way you want, but still there is the selfie. And there is this easy prancing about in your living room with your new clothes. I mean, there is so it is so easy. I think it is interesting, especially because people like to... Uh, you know, to create um, uh, TikTok dances or things that takes a bit of time to rehearse or whatever. And, and things, people just want to do the same. And you know, this horrible, I absolutely hate this 
I can, I, you know, I do this with my fingers and then I'm from the 90s and then I'm from the 80s and then I'm a rock star from the 70s. But, you know, and it's like, <laughs> and you've seen it 100,000 times. It's so fucking boring, excusing my language. And it's just this, I, I get so incredibly annoyed by people just wanting to be part of instead of making, which is a very different thing. And I'm still surprised to this day that not more youngsters who want to be a model, for instance, or, or who are very interested in fashion or in, uh, in photography, that they don't want to spend more time and energy creating images that could have been inside a fashion magazine because it's so visually... Uh, thematically different because it just there is something different from the the selfie or the mirror you know handheld camera telephone mm. image so i think which again leads me back to the feeling of fatigue that people are just look at me look at my style thing the thing is though that jumping on a tiktok trend means that you get lots of people who see you but it doesn't demand any talent well it could demand talent it's just that it, it's more about this being part of or maybe this is again back to a more beautiful if you are looking on the positive side a beautiful urge for people to just want to be part of we just want to be part of your community mm. i don't want to be someone special i just want to do the dance and i want to show others that they can yeah. dance do the dance it's like when we were growing up, though, when we were the weird kids and we just wanted to find our gang and then you find this trend on TikTok and you're part of the 90s, the 80s and the rock star. Yeah. And, I mean, we did a lot of home videos when I was a child and a lot of dressing up, like the stars, etc. And we did the final countdown playback video. I mean, all kinds of crazy things. And... Uh, and the nice thing was that no one could ever see it, kind of. It's just, you know, inviting down your parents. And that was cool. And we didn't get invited to any cool parties anyway, so we did have to figure, <laughs> did have to figure out something to do. <laughs> but, the, but the nice thing is I remember so vividly, even back then, when we, we were not invited to the cool parties because me and my, my friends were not in the cool gang. And obviously that was a bit sad. But also I think I already then understood that this we I mean we made like mock foreplays not with alcohol but with makeup or just dressing up or just you know and we're making a video or taking pictures or whatever and obviously we were playing professionals as well like what if this was a fashion magazine or what if this was a music video so it was sort of like the same game but the but the thing is that it it, it just has a when you always know that one million people could hopefully make your thing go viral it just it's it is as with everything to do with stardom it just has this it has this boundary of uh of uh, it, it puts a boundary on your freedom at the same time while opening up everyone could be part of it. everyone could see me it also gives the dream a lid at the same time because should I post it? Should I not post it? Do I look good? Do I not look good? Is it worth it? Is it not worth it? Will people like me? Will they not like me? I don't know. So just doing it because I feel like this. I feel like I'm in the countdown, final countdown now. You know, just want to try it on, which is a. It's easy to romanticize this, obviously, and maybe youngsters also feel that this is a very boring way of looking at it. But 
I don't know, going back to this, just doing it for the fun of it is difficult when you always have the possibility to convert it into something more. And we are kind of told that if you want to be someone in society, why don't you just do it? Why don't you do it? Cool thing. That is a sad thought. It is a sad thought, but on the other hand, things change. Yes. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and on that note, uh, I'm gonna thank you for coming along today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Where can people find you on the net? What is your TikTok? I'm uh, not on TikTok, even though my brother think I should be. I'm not on TikTok and I do not flaunt my clothes, but I do have an Instagram <laughs> account. Uh just uh Brockman Rangnil. The wrong way around. I'll link it in yeah, the show notes. Put it on the yep. show notes. And my articles you will find at Mornblather online. And also on my profile, you could find other podcasts that I've visited and other things that I'm into or whatever. Okay. Thanks for now. And uh, thank bye-bye. you and bye bye. And that was all for this week's episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to Rangnil Brockman for being my guest this week. I have added her contact details and links in the show notes. If you'd like to get in touch with uh, me, it's um, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram as welldressedad and uh, the blog and more at welldressedad.com. If you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy me a coffee link in the show notes. Otherwise, see you again next week. Bye-bye.